When I was a, a child, I remember in um, first grade, our music teacher would come into class, and she would pass out this box of musical instruments. There'd be a triangle with a stick, there'd be a wood block, and there'd be a string of, of bells. And we would sing the song Jingle Bells, and we got to the chorus of Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle All the Way. Everyone just started playing, kind of like MJ does on his tambourine. Yeah, we just, we just started making noise. They're banging the sticks and dinging the triangle and ringing those bells. And, and we sang a song that, honestly, I really had no clue what it was about. I'm dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. What's, I've never seen one of those. In fact, when we go traveling at Christmas, it's always in my dad's Chrysler Imperial, and we're slashing through the slush. So it's very different for us. How, how many of you are traveling this Christmas? How many of you are, are, are welcoming people who are traveling this Christmas? Maybe kids coming home from college, maybe grandma and grandpa coming down to town, or you're going to go somewhere. But Christmas is a lot about travel, and it's, it, it's that way because the story of Christmas is a lot about travel. Joseph and Mary traveling from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, the place of their birth, because Caesar Augustus required everyone to return to be accounted for. And so it's believed that they traveled possibly 90 miles. Now, we don't know how they traveled. Obviously, no cars, no planes then. It was either on foot or probably by donkey. And Joseph, knowing his wife was several months pregnant, hopefully got a donkey for her to sit on as they'd walk the journey, which would take several days to go that distance. Now, the shepherds, as part of the Christmas story, didn't have to travel very far. They were just out in the fields watching their flocks at night, and when they saw the star and heard the angels speak, they went into town and saw the baby in the manger. But those who traveled the most, I think, were the wise men. The wise men who were believed were from Persia, who had magi or wise men who were learned in the ancient books, including the scriptures. They had been alerted that a special event had taken place. Now, they didn't arrive at the manger. They actually arrived when Jesus was a little toddler living in a home in Nazareth. And so they traveled up to 1,000 miles to get to where he was. That's a long journey. But none of those journeys compare to the ultimate journey that Jesus took. In fact, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the Christmas journey, a journey that Jesus took all the way from the realm of eternity to planet Earth. And not just on planet Earth, but he, he took another journey to the cross, and that journey didn't stop there because his ultimate destination was to arrive in your heart. And so we're going to look at that story this, 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 this next month, from, from eternity to earth and from the crib to the cross and from history to your heart. We're going to look at the three legs of the journey because you actually participate in, in this journey. You're the critical piece of why Jesus came to make his journey successful. And so I want you to, to open up your heart this season and to go on a journey, a journey that I discovered change the rest of my life. I know that this season is very stressful for some of you. I know some of you have a lot of expectations and worries that have weighed you down, but I'm going to ask today if you would do something. If you would actually take all of those concerns and distractions, wrap them up, and let's set them on a shelf over here, and let's ask the Lord if he would speak a fresh message about the Christmas story to us today. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to open up your word. Speak to us now, Lord, as we open up the scriptures. And Lord, help us to see the beauty of this great story of good news for all the people. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from John chapter 1. Now, this isn't your typical Christmas story because we, we typically go to Matthew and Luke to hear about the 
angelic visit to Mary and about her pregnant sister. And then we, we see the stories about the shepherds and the wise men and all that kind of stuff. That's the typical Christmas story. But John takes a whole different approach. John actually says there's another story behind the scenes that you need to know about. And this is the story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through Him all might believe. He Himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is John's version of the story of the coming of Christ into this world. Now, I grew up in a tradition, the Methodist church, uh, that Christmas season was called Advent. And probably many of you grew up in a tradition like that. Advent means coming or arrival. It's the coming of Christ, and we celebrate that through the season. It's something we prepare for and something we rejoice in. But what I love about the word Advent, it's the beginning of another word that has to do with travel has to do with the journey, adventure, adventure. And here's what Advent reminds us of, that Christmas is about an adventure, an adventure for Jesus, an adventure for you. Now, I looked up the word adventure in the dictionary. Here's the definition, an exciting or very unusual experience, sometimes a bold and risky undertaking with an uncertain outcome. It's a good description of the journey Jesus took, and I think also of the journey we take when we choose to be followers of Jesus Christ. Helen Keller said, life is either an adventure or it is nothing. Because we like adventures. Isn't that why you got married? Right? Isn't that why you got married? Isn't that why you had those kids? Exciting and very unusual experiences. Bold and risky undertakings sometimes with an uncertain outcome. And so some of you go off to college, you enlisted in the military, and, and you didn't know what was down the road. You just knew this was going to be an adventure. This is going to be exciting. It's going to be a little bit dangerous. And I, I think that's a great description of Advent. It's that kind of a journey. But here's the difference. I, I don't believe the journey was meant to have an uncertain outcome. See, as far as, far as we're concerned, the outcome's pretty good. I mean, the Bible says that if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we have a place in heaven forever. That's pretty solid. That, that's a certain future for us who trust in Christ. But here's where the uncertainty comes in. Jesus came all the way to heaven, from heaven, down to earth. And from earth, he wants to become part of your life. And yet, he will not force his way in. He can come that close to you. He can come right in your face. But you and I have to open the door of our heart to let him in. His journey is not complete. And I believe God is disappointed that the journey wasn't complete when we refuse to accept him. And so that's where the, the, the uncertainty comes in. I don't know if you're going to be with him forever in heaven because you hold the key. He's done everything he could do. He's waiting for you to respond. 
to put your trust in Him. And so we all look at that passage today, and I want to look at three questions that come out of that passage from John. First of all, who was Jesus before He became a baby? Prequels are big business now in the movie industry. You know, for, Monsters, Inc. actually had a prequel that came later called Monsters University when Mike and Sully were back in school learning to be monsters. And one of my favorites, Batman Begins. I mean, you get to go back and find out, that's where Batman started. And, of course, the, the biggest of them all, Star Wars, has a whole trilogy of movies. that You saw Star Wars. Now you've got to see the prequel to what leads up to Star Wars. John is writing the prequel. We know the Christmas story. In fact, greeting cards will show you a little baby laying in a manger, candles on the wall, uh, animals smiling, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's all happening on Christmas morning. But John says, hey, you need to know there's a whole story before this story, a story that goes back eons before in the realm of the eternal because that's where Jesus resided. In, in, in fact, John says some pretty amazing, astounding things about Jesus because what he tells us is, first of all, he existed before his birth. Jesus actually existed before his birth. In the beginning was the Word. John, John's start of his book sounds like a, the start of another book of the Bible. In the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. In that same beginning was the Word, that Jesus was present in the very beginning. He had an existence prior to his earthly existence. In First Timothy, Paul quotes what may, might be an ancient hymn. He says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached, at, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and then was taken up into glory. He appeared, which means... He was somewhere else and then came on the stage. He appeared because he existed before. It's not that Jesus just instantly came into being when the baby was born in the manger. No, Jesus existed eternally before that, in the beginning. But he wasn't known as Jesus. He was known as the Word. Jesus didn't have a name, Jesus, until he took on human form. But before that, uh, the Bible calls him the, the Word of God. It's a Greek word, logos. It, it refers to the ultimate communication. It's the embodiment of what was written and spoken, that Jesus became the embodiment of all truth. Jesus, Jesus was all wisdom and all truth from God, and then he became a man and embodied that. But he existed as the word of God. In 1 John chapter 1, John writes that letter, starts it off this way, that which was from the beginning, Kind of saying the same thing, which we have um, heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. So Jesus existed before, wasn't known as Jesus, he's known as the word. He was not only with God, he was God. Now that throws some people. He was God. There's a whole church out there that says he was a God. No, no, it says he was God. We know him as the Son of God. But you need to know that when the Bible talks about Jesus being the Son of God, it has to do with his relationship to his Father, not his immaturity and development. We think of a son sometimes as, as someone who's in the process of growing to be like their father. So, so they're not quite mature, not fully developed, but yet Jesus always had the same attributes as his Father. 
It, it wasn't something Jesus had to grow up into. When the Bible talks about Jesus being the son, it has to do with his relationship, how he related to God. So he submitted himself to his father's authority like a son. And from the father's perspective, he became the heir of everything that belonged to him. In fact, when the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn, it's not referring to that Jesus was the first among many. It's Je- Jesus is the heir because the firstborn was the heir, the one who would inherit everything from the Father. So, so Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he, he submitted himself to his Father's authority, but he in every way was equal with God. And it says everything was made through him. Remember in Genesis when God says, let us make man in our image? Who is the us and who is the our? Well, we know the Holy Spirit is there because it starts off saying um, the Spirit hovered among the waters. So the Spirit's there and God's there and the Word is there. In fact, the Bible says that everything that was made was made by him and through him and for him, visible and invisible, that he might have supremacy over everything. And here's what this God, who existed from the very beginning, who has, who has origins that go way, way back, who never came on the scene like humans do, but he always existed, who made everything that we see, who's equal with God. Here's what he did. Verse 14, he became flesh and lived among us. That's called the incarnation. He, he put on human skin, confined himself to a body with two arms and two legs, and two eyes, ears, and nose, mouth, and, and he was confined as a body. Now, why did he do that? Why did Jesus become a man? You know, at Christmas time, we'll get a lot of different gifts at Christmas, and I don't know if, if, if all guys are like this, but I know many of us are. We see a gift, we know, how, we know how it functions. And so we start doing stuff with this, then something's not working, and then, then the, our wife will say, well, did you read the directions? <laughs> you know, Who needs the directions? Any idiot could do this thing. And yeah, but not this one. So, so you get out this, this book and you go, okay, here's how it's supposed to work. Okay, I get it now. And it even says on there, reads directions first. But you know, you know, because of our ego, I don't need to read directions first. This is so simple, I can do it. It's kind of like that instruction says, you know, plastic bag, don't put it over your head. I don't even need to read it. I already know that. So I know how this thing works and then I get stuck. And it reminds me of life because we get stuck in life and someone says, well, have you read the directions? And we go, oh, I haven't really. Well, the Bible gives you instructions on how do you have a great life, how you have a great marriage, how you should parent, how you should manage your finances, how do you have your career, all these things. The Bible addresses all those issues. Have you, have you read it? Well, no, I thought I could just figure it out on my own. Well, it's not working too well, is it? No. So we go back to reading this book and go, oh, man, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that's how a husband's supposed to act or a wife is, or employee, or a boss. I didn't know that until I read the directions. But even then, sometimes we get stuck, and, and we realize, you know, it's still not working. Because also at Christmas time, you get a product that on the box will say, batteries not included. And no matter how hard you try to make that car go, it's not going to go very far without the batteries. And you've got to have the source of power. You and I were made, placed on this earth, batteries not included. And Jesus came as the gift to say, I am the source of life. In him was life. In him was life. And you are missing out on life without the batteries, without the source of power. He says, you can try all you want. You're going to fail. You're going to get tired. You're going to wear out because you need me to energize you to do what I want you to do. 
So Jesus came in this earth as a man, first to reveal God to us. He wanted us to know what God was like. See, I used to think that God was one way in the Old Testament, a different way in the New Testament. God was kind of a mean God in the Old Testament. Jesus shook him up a little bit, corrected him. He was, he was much better behaved in the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament, there's plagues, you know, there's dark clouds, there's lightning, you know, it's grounds opening up, swallowing people. You come to the New Testament, and Jesus is smiling, handing out bread, and healing people, and you go, no, that's the kind of God I like. But you know what? It's the same God. It's the same God from the beginning to end. God was merciful in the Old Testament, and Jesus sometimes is pretty tough on people in the New Testament. But here's what we see about God. When, when Jesus put skin on, it became very tangible what God was like. Now, how many of you are, what, are, are, are visual learners? You like to see how things work before you can really understand them. See, we already had the conceptual kind of thing in the Scriptures. For those of us who just like to read it and understand it, we're good at that. But a lot of us say, you know, I learn far more by seeing. When I want to learn how to fix something, I'm so grateful for this, I, I YouTube it. I do. How do you, how you, how you change a um, garbage disposal? You know, how do you lay tile? I mean, how do you fix this gadget? And, you know, there's about a, like a YouTube video for everything. And so I love that because when I see someone do it, I go, well, I could do that. That makes a lot of sense. Jesus, when he put on a body, people could start to say, that's what grace looks like. That's what truth sounds like. I'm, I'm seeing it lived out in Jesus' lifestyle. And so now I get it. I, I understand what justice is like because I see it in Jesus. He came to reveal God. In, in John 14, 9, Jesus told his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Yeah, look at me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And then Hebrews 1, 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus in Scripture. That will reveal to you what God is like. Jesus came to say, hey, here's what God's like. But he came to do more than that. He came to live this perfectly obedient life. He wanted to prove his obedience. Because you and I go through life and we're tempted in a lot of ways. We're tempted to disobey God, to do what the Bible says is sin, reject God's plan and do our own way. And we sometimes just compromise saying, oh, I'm just human. You know, lost my temper. Some words came out. You know, I, I had sex with another woman. And just, just, I'm just human. That's, that kind of stuff just happens. No, it doesn't. You choose to do it. It's a choice. And it's a choice because you choose oftentimes not to do it. Right? More often than not, you choose not to do it. And I'll, I'm here to confess, there are times when I say what I know I shouldn't say. When I do what I know I shouldn't do. When I look at what I know I shouldn't look at. I willingly choose to do those things. It's not like something comes over me and, go, and I'm helpless. It's like, no, I'm tired of obeying God right now. I'm going to do it my way. Okay? We do that. That's called sin. It's called rebellion. There's a consequence for that. And we don't just do it once. We do it repeatedly. But sometimes we do obey. But here's what Jesus did. He obeyed all the time. You may say, well, he was Jesus. Yes, but he was in a man's body. He had hormones. He had eyes. He had all these things going. Jesus was tempted in every single way you and I were, but he did not sin. What that shows me is this. Jesus is a better man than I am. And because of that, he doesn't deserve what I deserve. I deserve death for my sins. He doesn't. But here's, else, here, here's really why Jesus came. To take my penalty for sin. 
to die in my place. Pay the price you and I should pay. The price our life, our eternal life, separated from God. Jesus said, I will do that. See, his perfection qualifies him to stand in our place. You can't take someone who's guilty and say, you're guilty, you, you take the place of this guilty person. No, you, you have your own thing to suffer for. You can't take anybody else's place, but you, Jesus, you don't, you, you don't need to do this. You're perfect. You're the only one who deserves to live. And Jesus said, that's why I'm willing to give my life willingly for all these people. Isn't that pretty amazing that Jesus was willing to pay the price for us? In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That's why he was made like us. Now, I know at this time of year, people get really bent out of shape over Santa Claus stealing the show. Like, it's all about Santa Claus, not Jesus. I'm here to tell you, for me, Santa Claus helps show me Jesus. I don't worship Santa Claus, but even by the time I was a kid, the thought that there was someone coming to give grace to me, to shower me with gifts, someone that would bring joy to my life that I could anticipate, that's pretty awesome. That I could live in this expectation of this incredible night when he was coming, this man in red and white. And yet, for most of us as parents, you know, we want our, our kids to know the truth. And the truth is this. That's only a picture of the greater story that Jesus came. Jesus arrived with gifts to give us that we don't deserve. And he gave his life for us so that we could be set free. And Santa Claus is just kind of like steps off the stage as Jesus takes center stage. I'll never forget this picture I saw in college. It was, it was a cartoon but it was a riveting cartoon because it showed this, this Santa Claus walking through a, a snow-covered landscape, and he's got this huge bag of bulky gifts in it, and he's trudging along, and he stops, and he's, like, paralyzed. And there's a, a, a tear on his cheek because all you can see off on the, on the other part of the little box diagram are the lower legs of a man hanging on a cross. Because that's the Christmas story. Even Santa knows that. So how did it turn out? How does this story turn out? Well, John says that the reception was a little bit different. Different people responded in different ways. See, Jesus, Jesus came in disguise. It reminds me of the undercover boss. I love the show, The Undercover Boss, where you have a CEO of a company, corporation, and, and they undergo this transformation to disguise themselves, put wigs on, mustaches, except for the ladies, and, you know, they'll, they'll just put this get up, and then they'll go and work among the common employees as salespersons, the, the floor crew, and they'll learn how hard those jobs are. And they'll also hear stories of these individuals. You know, they hear, they'll hear of the single mom who's trying to make ends meet to provide for her two kids, or the young guy who dropped out of school, was into drugs, and he's trying to turn his life around, and he doesn't think he'd ever go get an education that would move him further in his career. And you find the older person who's got medical bills or, you know, all kinds of, of heartbreaking stories. But then at the end of the episode, that CEO takes off the, the disguise and, and the employees are stunned. Like, I didn't know that was you. Wow. And, and then, the, then the boss does this. The boss begins to 
shower blessings on them. And he, and he looks at the young lady with the two kids and says, you know, you guys haven't been on a vacation. I'm going to do an all-expense-paid trip to Disneyland for all of you. And there's tears. And, and this young man who has a dream of advancing in his career, he says, I'm going to pay for college to, to advance in our company. And, and this person, I'm going to pay for that medical bill. And, and it's just a very emotional, powerful scene. It reminds me of the way Jesus came. He came as his undercover for God. Because people didn't know he was really God. But here's the difference. He wanted people to know he was God. He didn't want to stay undercover. And it says that he came to those that were his own. I mean, John says it this way. Listen to verses 11 and 12. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Those were the Jews because they had the Scriptures. They had all the promises of Scripture that said there's coming a time when God will send a, a Savior, a promised one, and he will forgive you of your sins. And so the people anticipated this, but when Jesus showed up and said, here I am, they said, no, no, not you. You don't look like the guy. I mean, we're looking for this king, this powerful guy, but you, you're hanging around those prostitutes and those sinners and you're loving Gentiles and, you know, that's not the kind of guy we're thinking of. We're thinking of someone a little more powerful and is going to take on the Romans and that's not you. His own rejected him. It's like all these centuries of preparation, it's kind of like, waiting up for Christmas, and Santa shows up and goes, no, I, I, I expected you in a red suit and a white trim, and the, that's how I expected you. And Jesus came in a different way. But you know what? Others saw through it and said, oh, this is so refreshing. This is unbelievable. To those who received him, he says, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I've met some people, even some people in our own church, who have adopted children from other countries at great expense. I mean, $15,000, $20,000 that they've invested in this whole process to go to China or to go to South America or Africa, to go to some orphanage and, and pick a little child who usually has a different skin color and different, different just look on their, on their face as their own children, and yet they go through all this expense, all this training and background checks to equip them to be able to be a parent to this child. And then the moment comes where they fly this, this long trip halfway around the world, and they go to the orphanage, and they scoop up this little boy or little girl, and they just love on this child, and they start to cry and weep. And I, th- and I think about that. There is never an oops adoption. Every adoption is by choice. Every child from that country that's adopted by someone here in the States that cost was calculated, and they said it's worth it to go get that little one. That little boy is worth it. If it was 40000 he'd still be worth it. She'd still be worth it. And think about Jesus, that Jesus looked around the landscape of heaven and said, Father, there's some kids I want to adopt, and I'm willing to pay a great price, my own blood, and go down there and get them for you. But remember when I started this and said that an adventure has a, sometimes an uncertain outcome, that's where you and I come in. Because Jesus can come right to your doorstep and say, I'm here to bring you into God's family because if you receive Jesus, if you believe on his name, you get to become a child of God. And yet you have to say yes to that. You have to say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm, I'm surrendered. Take me. Take me here now. Eventually take me to your Father's home in heaven. And I just want to know, have you ever done that? Have you ever responded to his invitation? He will not snatch you. He will not kidnap you, but he will invite you. And he's already paid the price. He's already traveled the distance. He's just waiting for you to respond.